Well, greetings from Crossway Church in Keene, New Hampshire. It's really a joy to be here with you this morning. And <clears throat> like Thomas said, go ahead and open up your Bibles to the book of 2 Timothy. And I want to take a moment to sort of frame my goal and uh, my approach here a bit uh, using a military analogy, okay? I know that you guys prize and value expository preaching at this church. In fact, I was talking to uh, Reuben, and he was saying that was one thing that, that brought him to this church uh, more recently when he was looking for a church was a desire to go verse by verse through books of the Bible to really know and come to understand what God is saying, what God is teaching us. Well, what we're going to try to do this morning is, uh, is going to be a little bit different. Those expository sermons uh, that you guys are used to hearing at Ambassador Bible Fellowship, uh, they're like the commandos on the ground, okay, performing missions ops all up close and personal with the text, nitty-gritty details, the guys in the trenches, boots on the ground. But what, what I'm going to ask you to do this morning is to join the Air Force, okay, and to climb aboard really a special reconnaissance aircraft, and we're going we're gonna to do a flyover survey of the book of Second Timothy. And uh, when you're just coming to preach at a place one time, uh, that works really well. And, and I think it is one of the best ways that I can, that I can uh, tie my comments and what I, what I want to share with you this morning to a, a book of the Bible that, as we'll get into, I, I really see is God's manual for ministry, like his, his instruction book. Um, and so we're going to survey Second Timothy this morning, and we're going to do it also with sort of a missions emphasis, okay? The, the applications... Uh, the points that I draw out, they're going to really uh, be directed at framing and shaping our understanding and our opinion of missions. Now, our family, as Thomas said, is anticipating the day when we will climb uh, aboard an airplane and uh, we will head to Croatia and spend our lives there as missionaries, training pastors and engaging in the work of church planting and church strengthening in that region of the world uh, with the ultimate goal of making disciples for the glory of God. And uh, I'm excited for the opportunity to share these things with you um, and to share what God has taught me to inform uh, that desire through this book, through the book of Second Timothy. Um, and so my prayer, right along with the Apostle Paul, is that we would be strengthened by the grace of Christ, as he says in Second Timothy chapter 2 and verse 1, uh, to really grow and be stretched and be changed by his word this morning. So let's go to prayer now and ask for his help as we endeavor to do this. Lord, we, we need you to illumine your word to us. We, we are sinful. We, we do not prioritize the things you prioritize. We don't naturally uh, embrace the strategies that you embrace. We... We have an aversion to suffering and to hardship, and yet you call us to these very things as the good news, as the gospel is disseminated to the world. Uh, you have a plan. You have a manual for ministry. And so we're hungry for your word this morning. We want, to, we want to know it. We want to love it. We want to embrace it. We want to practice it. We need your spirit to make the meaning of your word clear to us this morning, and we need your power to, to cause obedience to take place in our lives. And so we beg you for these things. 
humbly, all on the basis of the Lord Jesus Christ. Through, through his sacrifice, we are actually even able to come before your throne now and plead these things. So grant them, because you love your son, and you love his bride, the church. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, when Sarah and I are invited to various churches, as we were this morning, we're often given something like this equipping hour uh, to share with the people of that church what we plan to do in Croatia. Um, But really, it's critical for us to remember and for us to remind and, and really proclaim to these churches that all of our plans, all of our hopes, and all of our desires are without warrant unless it can be shown that our goals and our means of accomplishing those goals are in line with God's plan, as he has revealed it in Scripture. So when I think about missions, when I think about what will, Lord willing, be our future ministry, when I think about your church, Ambassador Bible Fellowship, I have this strong longing that we be informed so that we can truly engage in missions work the way God wants us to. And in order to engage in missions the way God wants us to, there is a foundational question that we really have to ask. And it's very simply this. What is the mission of God? What is the mission of God? What's his ultimate purpose, his goal, and his reason for creating and being involved in this world? What is the mission of God? And this is an essential question. Because if we are going to be ambassadors... For the king, and I love the name of your church, by the way, if we're going to be his ambassadors, his instruments, the heralds of his message, then our mission and our message must align with his precisely. If if there's any deviation from God's mission, then we're no longer acting as servants of the king and of his kingdom, but we're acting as autonomous servants ourselves in some misguided or misplaced affection or idol. And so you can easily see how crucial and how important it very quickly becomes to have a very robust and biblically informed answer to the question, what is the mission of God? Well, people have suggested various answers to that question. Some people don't even bother to consider it, sadly enough. But when you look at the whole testimony of Scripture, it is this. The mission of God is the glory of God. The mission of God is the glory of God. Romans 11.36, all things, pretty all-encompassing statement there, all things are from Him, through Him, and to Him. He's the source of all things. He's the great accomplisher of all things. All things are ultimately for Him. They're to Him. They're for His glory. Isaiah 6. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Psalm 19, even how nature proclaims this, the heavens declare the glory of God. Exodus chapter 14, verses 17 through 18, in the the account of God miraculously delivering the Israelites from Egypt, he talks about how even the, the hardening of hearts and the rejection of Uh, Who God is, is ultimately used by him to serve his glory. Speaking of Pharaoh and of the Egyptians, God says, And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. 
when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh and his chariots and his horsemen. Do you see the biblical emphasis there? Even when the kingdom or when God's agenda is being opposed, he is using that to serve his own glory. God's mission is to receive the worship that he is due because of who he is and what he has done to reveal himself to us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The mission of God is to reconcile all things to himself so that his awesome glory and his magnificent character will be displayed and exalted. And God wants all creation to behold his son Jesus and to marvel at what he has done. That's the mission of God. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is the Lord. Now, Bruce, I'm so thankful for how he led us in communion this morning because I was going to touch on this and he's already kind of gotten our minds thinking this direction. The Bible's philosophy of history is that history is a kingdom. The kingdom. He highlighted this in the, in the passage where Luke said, you'll sit, sit with me at my table in my kingdom and you'll reign with Jesus. And so the Bible's philosophy is history is that history is a kingdom. And in the end, God's plan is that Jesus, God's son, will deliver up the kingdom to his father. But on the way to doing that, he must subjugate every usurper, every rival to his authority. That is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 25, Christ must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Then he will deliver up that subjugated kingdom to God the Father. So right now, as we speak today, Christ is reigning. He is seated with the Father in glory. Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3 tells us, after making purification for sins, right, on the cross, Jesus sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He is reigning there. But as you know all too well, he is reigning over a world that at this point is largely made up of people who have rebelled against the government of heaven. So what's going on now? Well, what's going on right now is he is offering them terms of pardon. Those terms are found in the gospel. And we, the church, are commissioned to go into every nation on this earth and to proclaim to each individual those terms of pardon as they are found in the gospel. And when someone believes the gospel, they are accepting the Lord's terms of pardon. And they, they lay down their arms of rebellion. It has been said, God will save a sinner, but he will not save a rebel. You must lay down your arms of rebellion. And where you have people who by the grace of God and the miracle in their life are prepared to cease their rebellion, to literally, to literally call out to him to deliver them from the effects of their rebellion and they confess with their mouths that Jesus Christ is Lord and they believe in their hearts that God raised him from the dead, then God will save them. And one by one, they are transferred, Colossians says, transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. That's how we enter the kingdom. 
We are transferred into it by God as you receive for yourself the one who is the king. And so what that means at this point in time is that the Lord is conquering one by one and building his kingdom, one single saved individual at a time. He, he adds to his church one soul at a time, one baptism at a time, one profession of faith at a time, one rebellious individual at a time laying down their arms, coming to Christ. But the day will come when our Lord Jesus judges the earth. Revelation 11:15 says, uh, talks about how the kingdom of the Lord has become the kingdom of our God and of his Christ. And that is in the context of that final judgment when all the rebels who would not lay down their arms will be crushed in that final judgment. So a day will come and is coming when all who have been foreordained to eternal life have bent the knee to the king. And all who persisted in their rebellion will be crushed in swift, righteous glorious, just judgment. Until then, we live day by day in a time when God is showing immense patience. He's showing His long-suffering with a sinful world. His tender, merciful kindness. His compassionate disposition. So 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9 says, "...the Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise." This day when every knee will bow and every tongue will pass. He's not slow. It's not like he's not going to do it. But he's patient toward you. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So God is patiently delivering his terms of pardon through the mouths of his ambassadors, the church. This is our business. This is our occupation. This is our job. Now what I have just done is summarize the entire purpose of the world. The whole trajectory of history. I've shared with you the glimpse that Scripture gives us of the completed tapestry that God is weaving. A kingdom. A kingdom where His glory is fully unveiled. And as a Christian, you are a citizen of that kingdom. And your life is a thread in that tapestry that God is weaving. But here's the challenge that we face. It is easy for a thread to lose sight of the tapestry. When we, as little threads, fail to look long and deep into God's Word as it shows us that tapestry, when we fail to do that, we lose perspective. Sometimes you and I can become selfish, even as we consider our own salvation. We can begin to think it's all about me and my salvation. And then the selfishness can infect our Christian lives. It's become obsessed with getting self-help from the Bible so that I can live my life. And suddenly, we're subtly losing sight of the larger, most important realities. And so it's from this kind of, uh, this kind of misguided perspective and attitude uh, that, you, that the, the complaints against the Bible can arise, ah, it just doesn't seem relevant to me. Well, first, it certainly is relevant. When we fail to see its relevance, the problem is with us and not with the Bible. And second, that's fundamentally the wrong perspective. Because the question must never be, is the Bible relevant to me? 
The question must always be, am I relevant to the Bible? Is my life oriented around God's purpose? Around being a citizen of His kingdom? Do my habits and my activities and the way I order my day and structure my life and use my time, do they prove that I have a longing to be a part of what God is doing in His world through His church for His glory? Am I fulfilling my created purpose as a worshiper of God, aiming to make much of Him in all that I do and seeking to make Jesus Christ famous in this world for His grace? Now I say all of that, and we will get to 2 Timothy, okay? I warned about the extended introduction. I say all of that to say this. When we talk about missions, the conversation often goes to a discussion about strategy for reaching the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And there are so many different strands of missions work. How do we pick which to be involved with? What we have to realize is that because the whole endeavor is ultimately about the glory of God, that he's not just concerned with the end results, but he is also concerned with the entire process of how we do ministry. Because God is glorious, okay? He has what theologians call intrinsic glory by virtue of the fact that he is God. But there's another side of that coin where, amazingly, God invites us to ascribe glory to him in our acts of obedience and faith. And so there truly is a real sense in which God gains glory for himself Not only when people turn from their sin and trust in Christ for salvation, but also in the whole process involved. As his people actively consider his glory in the way they go about doing the work of evangelism. So strategy matters. And this has massive implications on how we do ministry. Because it's with this biblically informed perspective that we know it's not just about the ends but also about the means. God is concerned with the strategy, the style, the priorities, the activities, the motives, the attitudes, and every other imaginable aspect of gospel ministry. God cares about it. God cares about it. It can be easy, perhaps, for us to see how we ascribe glory to God in times when ministry is being blessed with success. But what about the times when it's hard? It doesn't seem to be going anywhere. The Bible teaches that God is glorified as we endure suffering because it produces steadfastness and greater trust and dependence upon him, James chapter 1. And even when our message is veiled and rejected by blind sinners, God is glorified in our faithful, in our obedient proclamation of the truth, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And so this perspective changes everything. And it's the key to joy and to endurance in your ministry. And by the way, if you are a Christian, you are a minister, a servant of the gospel. Second Corinthians chapters 4 and 5 tell us that you have been reconciled to God and now are a minister of reconciliation, a servant of the gospel, God's, God's instrument for reconciling others to himself. And it's amazing to think that Jesus knew you intimately. He saw the depths of your sin and your rebellion against him. He understood the evil intentions 
of your naturally insubordinate heart. While we were still sinners, right, in that condition, Christ died for us. Romans chapter 5 and verse 8. Jesus purposed to sacrifice himself on the cross to save us when we were willfully setting ourselves against him. Treating him as our enemy. Hating him. But he rescued us. He, he took our spiritually dead hearts of stone and placed within us a living, beating heart of flesh and He stripped the blinders from our eyes, causing us to actually be able to understand the Gospel. He bore the wrath of His Father, taking the full punishment that we deserve upon Himself. And then He dressed us in His very own spotless righteousness. And because of His perfect righteousness and total obedience to the Father, though He died on the cross, and He did die, the, the grave couldn't hold Him. He, he rose again, victorious, conquering death, proving that His sacrificial death was accepted and we're eternally secure in Him. Nothing can steal us away from the mighty and loving embrace of our Father. We're adopted as His very own sons and daughters. We're given an inheritance and a new purpose. Christ has redeemed for Himself a people, His church, His bride. And it is through His church that His glory will be propagated to all nations, every tribe and tongue and language. Then Christ shall have the prize for which He died, an inheritance of nations. Because of this glorious gospel, because of this good news, the church has been about proclaiming this message for generations. Now, Second Timothy. In this letter, Paul holds himself up as a spiritual father to Timothy, and he, he charges him to take the ministry and keep moving forward with it, and that charge abides for us today. From generation to generation of the church, the baton of gospel ministry has been passed on. And now, Ambassador Bible Fellowship, it's our turn. It's our turn to continue in this legacy of the Apostle Paul and Timothy and all the faithful witnesses God has used throughout church history to accomplish His plan. It's our turn. It's our responsibility. It's our stewardship, as this book puts it. This gospel has been entrusted to us. We need to disseminate it for the glory of our King. It's our turn. And that's why God has given us the book of 2 Timothy. When you study this book, you find that God has provided a manual for ministry. He hasn't left us in the dark about how to go about ministry. Because God knows that apart from His guidelines... Without his instructions, we would certainly fail in our management of this good news that has been entrusted to us. And he cares too much about his own glory and about the exaltation of his son to allow the gospel to be mismanaged. And so we must heed his instructions in this manual for ministry. If you want to be a faithful minister of the gospel here in Meridian, Idaho, in Boise, then heed these words. I'm going to encourage you, though this is a survey and I'll be moving quickly, let your eyes pass over the text and I'll give you a second encouragement. Read through the book of 2 Timothy as soon as you can, again, after this sermon, to solidify everything that we talk about. Because it's somewhat useless 
uh, for me to say a bunch of things and for you to not be able to look at your Bible and reproduce those same truths in your own mind and your own heart to inform the way that you live your life. So let's launch into this now. The main idea is this. In 2 Timothy, we see three essential ways every minister of the gospel must align himself with God's sovereign plan for the success of his church. A little bit of a mouthful, but I don't think it's terribly complicated. Three essential ways every minister of the gospel must align himself with God's sovereign plan for the success of his church. Second Timothy is the last of the letters written by the Apostle Paul. You have 13 of them in your New Testament Paul wrote this letter to his beloved son in the faith, Timothy, from prison in Rome. Now, this was Paul's second Roman imprisonment. And it was much more intense than the first. You could contrast uh, Philippians chapter 1, when he talks about how his imprisonment has actually served to advance the gospel because he's been able to proclaim the gospel to all the, the guards that he was chained to. This is, this is, that was his first imprisonment. Associate that one maybe with Philippians. This is his second Roman imprisonment later on. Paul was on death row. This was no mere house arrest. He was in a dark, dank, subterranean dungeon, literally in chains, mentioned several times in chapter 1. He was abandoned, he was lonely, and he knew that his death was imminent. This is the tone of Paul in 2 Timothy. It's written by a man who can sense that the end of his earthly walk is near. Consider what he says in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. He says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And so during this, his second Roman imprisonment, Paul wrote this second letter to Timothy, realizing that he would soon be dead. Paul is passing the baton of ministry to Timothy. Paul is saying, gospel ministry is a legacy. I have it. As an apostle of Jesus Christ, it was, it was given to me by Christ himself. Now I pass it to you and intend for you to pass it on to godly men who will in turn pass it on to other faithful men. With the end result of building a church that will last and stand strong by the power of Christ and for the glory of Christ. So what we have, really in 2 Timothy, is Paul, in immaculate detail explaining to Timothy how to have a ministry that honors the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, one that is worthy of this great gospel. How does this book do this? Well, in chapter 1, Paul gives a negative instruction pertaining to ministry. Paul says, Timothy, this is what you must not do if you want to have a successful ministry. What is it? What is it that must not be done? What what does Paul caution so strongly against? Well, the whole of chapter 1 can be boiled down to this one concept. Don't be ashamed. Don't be ashamed. So that's the first essential. Don't be ashamed of gospel suffering. Chapter 1. Now, pastor eyes over the text here. Just take a quick scan of chapter 1 with me. And you'll see this repeated theme. Chapter 1 and verse 8. He says, Do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. And then as Paul is describing his own suffering for the gospel, he says in verse 12, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, 
and am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. And then a little further down in chapter 1, Paul gives an example of people who were ashamed. See that in verse 15? You were aware that all who were in Asia turned away from me. Why? Why why did all these people from an entire region turn away from Paul? Well, they were ashamed of his suffering for the gospel. They wanted to disassociate with that. And this is such a big deal to Paul that he even names names of ones who were ashamed. He calls them out. Vigilus and Hermogenes in verse 15. They are ashamed of the gospel message and of the suffering that's involved with true gospel ministry. And then, I love how chapter 1 ends because it it ends on the flip side with a positive example of one who was not ashamed. Concluding chapter 1, the end of chapter 1, there's this account of this beloved man with an incredible ministry of encouragement named Onesiphorus. And he visits Paul in prison. Chapter 1 and verse 16, Onesiphorus, he was not ashamed of Paul's chains. Now, when this man, Onesiphorus, visited Paul in prison in Rome, it would be kind of like visiting a terrorist in Guantanamo Bay. Such an action actually paints a target on your own back. Because by aligning yourself with the one who is a criminal in the eyes of the government, you risk tying yourself to his same fate which no doubt is one of the reasons why everyone in Asia and Fidulus and Hermogenes wanted to distance themselves from Paul. Well, in this manual for ministry, God says, don't be ashamed of the message, of the ministry, of the suffering and persecution that faithfulness to Jesus will inevitably bring. Don't be ashamed of the gospel, as it says in Romans, for it is the power of God unto salvation. But it can seem paradoxical to us when we consider what, what has just been described in, in uh, 2 Timothy chapter 1. Why? Why does God's plan involve so much suffering for his people? Why is the Apostle Paul, the greatest missionary who ever lived, the pioneer of pioneer missionaries, being given prison time and a death sentence? Is that a fair question? I mean, we know God is sovereign. We know it's all under his control. But why does his plan involve so much suffering for his people? In Croatia, when people are baptized and express their faith in Jesus, forsaking the false gospel that's taught in the Roman Catholic Church, there's a cost. Employment and livelihood can be lost. Family relationships can be severed. Uh, Our missionary friend we're going to join over there told me a story about a young girl who was invited to one of their youth events who heard the true gospel for the first time proclaimed and understood it, understood the difference between that and what she had always learned and been taught in the Roman Catholic Church. She continued to be discipled and came to the point where she said, I want to be baptized. In the Roman Catholic Church, infants are baptized. It's the the first sacrament in in their uh, false belief. You're infused through the working of works. By that work, you're infused with justifying grace. And so this, this girl had already been baptized, as is what everyone does in their culture. Also in Croatian culture, moms, dads, aunts, and uncles, grandparents, they live in these family compounds, somewhat of a uh, common phenomenon in, in Europe. It's a big problem in Italy for the spread of COVID-19. Uh, maybe if you were paying attention to the, to the news. Uh, but they do that in Croatia, too. Well, the Sunday came 
when this girl was to go and be baptized, and uh, her entire family, aunts, uncles, grandparents, parents, siblings, they stood, the car pulled up, opened the door, they, they lined the walkway, stood with their arms crossed as if daring her to walk past everyone and get in that car and go do what she was going to do. See, in that culture, you are shamed when you align with the true gospel. The same happens in many cultures in different ways. But this shouldn't come as a surprise to us. It really shouldn't. Have we studied the Gospels? Suffering that then leads to glory is at the heart of the Gospel message itself. Jesus suffered death on the cross to emerge from the grave victorious. And so as we take up our cross and follow Him, we follow in the footsteps of Christ Himself and there is no greater privilege. And so we are unashamed of the Gospel and of the suffering that it brings because we have a solidarity with our Lord in those very things. Second essential, train men to rightly handle the Word of God to kill infectious false teaching. Chapter 2. Chapter 2 takes it to the next step. See, Paul, if you remember, has been given a negative instruction. Chapter 1. Timothy, don't be ashamed. If you are, it will destroy your ministry. Now he moves to the positive side. Here is what you must do. Chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 2. Paul says, What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Now this, this verse is the verse from which uh, springs and validates our entire ministry plan and strategy in Croatia. The training of men who will faithfully shepherd churches, nurturing God's people according to the Word of God, is rightfully called essential. It's an essential part of God's plan for the success of His church. The training of leaders uh, to do discipleship uh, really is, is required. Required. Now, there are some men who, in the plan of God, are called to be pastors, to be teachers. Those men must be equipped. By God's design, they are instrumental in the discipling of the whole body of believers. Now, just because the training of elders and their shepherding role uh, in discipleship is emphasized here, that doesn't diminish the importance of other gifts. I want to be careful to clarify that. Other gifts, other services in the church. Remember, this is all part of Pauline theology. We function as a body. Okay? The pastors are not the whole body. They could not function in their role if the rest of the body is not fulfilling their purpose and using their gifts. So we're not so much talking about superiority here as much as we're simply seeking to track with the biblical emphasis. And it makes sense logically. Why? Because the teachers, the ones charged with preaching the word, they are given this serious role of equipping the others in the church to use their gifts and to perform their functions as part of the body in response to the instruction of God's word. Right? Not just doing their own thing, but informed by truth. Because God is so gracious to call out certain men to do this work in the church, to shepherd. All of the whole church benefits from it. 
we, we receive instruction that informs our reasons and our motives for offering up our own unique gifts and contributions to God in the life of the church. And through that ministry, the ministries that each of you have uh, is able to be worship. It's an informed worship in spirit and in truth. And so the training of men to fill this role is a biblical priority, and it is one that we can all be involved in. It's this even more exciting aspect. The training, the, the training of pastors isn't just a job for other pastors. All of you, all of us, can be involved in this activity. Some by directly training and discipling men. Others by praying and serving and using their gifts to support that essential ministry. Who knows? Maybe a future pastor of Ambassador Bible Fellowship right now is sitting under the teaching of the children's church across the street. And uh, is, there, is there a lady who is involved with, the, with that ministry? What's, what's her name? Or a man? Somebody who's over there right now. Anybody know? Okay, nobody knows who their children are with. Great. <laughs> My children are up there. Anyways, whoever... What? Marissa! Okay, a future pastor of Ambassador Bible Fellowship may be having their gospel foundation laid right now by the faithful service of Marissa. That's awesome. That's awesome. She's laying a gospel foundation for him. Just like in this very book, Paul says to Timothy. He says, he says he's so thankful for the sincere faith that, that dwells in Timothy. A faith that dwelt first in his grandmother and his mother. Hey, we can all be involved in this ministry. And so, we train men to rightly handle the Word of God. Chapter 2, then, goes on to warn us about something very dangerous. Really, if you look at the New Testament, it's the most lethal, uh, the most fundamentally destructive force that will undermine the ministry of an entire church and namely, it is false teaching. You see, Paul is not interested in the short game. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he is crafting a strategy of ministry that will have a lasting legacy, that will successfully build a church that can withstand the attacks of false teaching. Generation after generation of the church will be kept safe, kept pure, until the day when Christ returns to gather his elect to himself. How? Well, he tells Timothy, you need to entrust this ministry, these sound words, this gospel to faithful men. Then chapter 2 and verse 14, you need to remind them of these things and charge them before God. You need to thoroughly equip them to deal with false teaching in the church, to stamp it out. Because false teaching, look at verse 16, leads to more and more ungodliness. And then verse 17 talks about how it spreads like gangrene. Now, what's gangrene? It's a deadly disease for which the only cure is amputation. You can cut it off. You see that in verse 17. False, false teaching is described as an infectious disease. Again, Paul is so serious about this issue of false teaching that he, and the danger that it is to the church, he names names in verse 17. Hymenaeus and Philetus, these men were assaulting the doctrine of the, the bodily resurrection. False teaching is deadly. The church in Croatia is assaulted by anti-gospel false teaching all the time. 
Our brothers and sisters in that place, they face an onslaught of attacks, the false teaching of the Roman Catholic Church. It undermines the true gospel in so many ways. They, they promote an authority outside of God's word. They make idols out of the Pope and out of tradition, trampling on the sufficiency of Scripture. They, they minimize the saving efficacy of Christ alone, saying that it's necessary for there to be a co-redemptrix in the person of Mary. And they strip the glory of, from God when they attribute salvation to good works, to acts of penance, to checking boxes of sacraments. And they really fuel licentious living or an anti-sanctification with their erroneous doctrine of penance, that you can atone for sins by doing these other things. And they, they ascribe power to absolve sins to their priests, a power which rightfully belongs only to one man, the God-man, Christ Jesus. There is only one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, Hebrews tells us. And there is just seemingly this insurmountable mountain of error that we as the church are faced with. It comes in all shapes and sizes in various cultures around the world. And so the question becomes, how? How do you combat this false teaching that attacks the church? The answer, by rightly handling the word of truth, chapter 2 and verse 15, by being a worker, the text says, who day in and day out studies the scripture with reverence and honor and respect for the word and for the God whose word it is. That's the only way. Rigorous, disciplined, meticulous, systematic, accurate, careful, reverential study, teaching, and application of God's word. Apart from that, your church would be destroyed by false teaching. Ambassador Bible Fellowship is vulnerable to this. This is a serious warning. scary reality is that we can become cavalier in the way we go about ministry in the church. Careless. Defining our own way. Without carefully consulting God's word in everything. We must not do this. If we do, we are in danger of incurring God's judgment. Remember Revelation chapter 2 and 3, a section of the book that's addressed to seven different churches. And in each of those, except for two, I think, there is a warning of judgment that is to come. We have to stay pure. And the only way to do this is through uncompromised commitment to Scripture, rightly handling the word of truth. Do not tolerate false teaching in the church. But do remember this. God has the power to save even those who are steeped in error. Consider 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 24 through 26 at the end of the chapter there, where the attitude and the demeanor of the Lord's servant is addressed and described. Verse 24 says this, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Isn't that awesome testimony to the grace of God? We're talking about somebody who's in the clutches of Satan, who's infiltrated the church, who's doing his will by propagating false teaching. God can grant him repentance. God can lead him to a knowledge of the truth. 
God can cause him to escape the snare of the devil. Well, this brings us to the third essential. Remember, we're looking at three essential ways every minister of the gospel must align himself with God's sovereign plan for the success of his church. First essential, don't be ashamed of gospel suffering, chapter 1. Second essential, rightly handle the word of God to kill infectious false teaching and train men so that that work continues in the church. And now the third essential, build a lasting gospel legacy by prioritizing the preaching of God's word. Chapters 3 through 4. How do you have a legacy? How do you build up a ministry that will raise up faithful men who will in turn go out and raise up other faithful men. How do you build a legacy? You see, Paul's ministry becomes our ministry. And the question of chapter 3 is, how can your ministry endure? Let's recap the flow of the book so far using an orthodontic example. I am the son of a dentist, okay? So this is where this spring from. How many of you had braces or have? All right, quite a few. Braces work both negatively and positively, don't they? They remove the crookedness and they provide the straightness to the teeth. Chapter 1, don't be ashamed. Negative. Chapter 2, train men to rightly handle God's word to defend the church from false teaching. Positive. Last step in the orthodontic process, the one that I personally failed in, maybe some of you did. A retainer, right? How many of you were given a retainer by your orthodontist and didn't wear it till the next checkup, you'd, you'd pull out a hammer and try to smash that thing in there so that it would look like you'd been wearing it the whole time. And your teeth are as crooked as before the whole orthodontic process began. I did that. To my shame. <clears throat> we have to maintain. We have to retain. That's our goal in Croatia. Eventually, we want to eliminate the need for missionaries to go to Croatia. It could be said as I mentioned in the equipping hour, that we want to work ourselves out of a job in going there by by following God's plan, by not compromising on the gospel, even in the face of suffering, by training men to rightly handle the word of God. We're headed in the right direction to accomplish that goal. We're following God's manual for ministry so far in that process, but there is one final step. It's not enough for them to just study the word and to understand it. They must proclaim it. They have to preach it. And that's the third essential. And this is the one of all of them in the book that will be met with massive opposition. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 3 and listen to this list. Here's how God describes the kind of people that we will be encountering in these last days until Christ returns. 2 Timothy 3 verses 1 through 5. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having an appearance of godliness but denying its power. How would you like to uh, deliver the expository sermon on that particular set of verses? That is quite a list of sins, of opposition, the propagation of God's word. Because people hate God's message. People are easily infuriated by the proclamation that Jesus Christ is Lord. They hate it so much 
that they will actually refuse to hear sound teaching. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. It says, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. So what do we do? How can the gospel continue? How can the church survive such a hostile environment as has just been described in inspired scripture? Well, it's because 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 is true. We can rest in the fact that all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable. It means it, it does have an effect. It can't not have an effect. It is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The remedy for every issue, the wisdom to navigate every difficulty is found in the pages of Scripture. The people have to hear it proclaimed. And so Paul says in chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, I charge you, preach the word, be ready, in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. These men, who we go to train in Croatia, by the grace of God, they will go out into Croatia and throughout the countries of former Yugoslavia, and they will plant and strengthen churches, and they will do it, wielding the most powerful weapon available to us, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, Ephesians 6 tells us. They preach it. They proclaim it. They exalt the gospel of Jesus day by day, week by week. They endure suffering for that reason, but they remain unashamed of the gospel. And like Second Timothy chapter 4 and verse 8 says, as they long for and love the appearing of Christ, right, His return, when all the rebels will be gone. His kingdom will be established. They preach Christ faithfully until that day as they wait. They, like Paul, will have a crown of righteousness awarded to them. And all of this, as we continue steadfast, unashamed of the gospel, as we rightly handle the word of truth, standing against the attacks of false teaching, and as we preach that powerful word in season and out of season, to build a gospel legacy that lasts from generation to generation. Christ will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. In all of this, the mission of God is accomplished and he is glorified.